0: Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be able to introduce, uh, to welcome you first and foremost uh, to the second President's Lecture of this academic year. For those of you who are devotees of this lecture series, uh, you will know that this was a series that I began almost six years ago now uh, because of my intense frustration that although it was possible on any given day of the week at this university to hear distinguished scholars talking about their work, it was very uncommon to be able to hear my own colleagues talk about their work. And uh, I thought that it would be a very important thing to have opportunities for the community to hear each other and to... um, Uh, uh, really uh, celebrate the kind of uh, wonderful academic work that is done by members of our faculty. Uh, There is uh, no finer example of that than today's lecturer, uh, Andy Moravchak of the Department of Politics in the Woodrow Wilson School. And to introduce him and his very interesting topic, which you can see here in this slide, I have asked his colleague, uh, on many fronts his colleague, uh, Professor Bob Cohan uh, to introduce him. Uh, I do so because Bob himself needs no introduction. Um, he is uh, one of the most eminent uh, uh, members of the international relations um, uh, community in the world. Um, he just returned from a trip to China, where I am told he was greeted as a rock star by all of the faculty in uh, China who, of course, know of his eminent work. And I am very grateful to him for his willingness to introduce Andy this afternoon. Bob.
1: Thank you very much, President Tillman. Uh, Stories become amplified when they cross the Pacific. It's a big (laughs) ocean, Uh, I wouldn't take that too seriously. Uh, Andrew Moravchek is a Renaissance man, making him almost unique among social scientists. His multifaceted talents and interests range far beyond political science. He is an expert cook and opera critic, for example. However, I limit myself in this introduction to his accomplishments as a political scientist. He's a major theorist of international relations, having published an influential article on a liberal theory of international relations and a widely cited and, and, and somewhat stinging critique of what is known as realism entitled, Is Anyone Still a Realist? To which the implicit answer was no. Uh, Professor Rovchak has also done uh, important work on human rights institutions. In addition, he's the most cogent analyst of the European Union working on this side of, of the Atlantic Ocean. And his work is the object of, of much debate among European commentators. His 1998 book, The Choice for Europe, is in my view the most important book written on on the European Union in the last 40 years, now almost the last 50 years. He he has also argued convincingly that Europe does not have a democratic deficit. Indeed, that the EU is approximately as as democratic as as its member states are in their actual practice. This is a controversial view because the conventional wisdom is the opposite. Professor uh, Mravchick came to Princeton in 2004 from Harvard, which used to have the strongest faculty in, in, in international relations of any university. We are honored to have, have him, him, him speaking here on a topic that connects his expertise in European politics and world politics. Is there a democratic deficit in world politics? Andrew Mravchick.
2: I'd be very happy to accept a return invitation from Shirley to speak about the death of opera, which is a (laughs) topic I have in the back of my mind. But today I'm constrained to speak about whether there's a democratic deficit um, in world politics. By which I mean, uh, is there a democratic deficit in multilateral institutions? That is the cooperative structures we have in international uh, politics. Uh, And I will focus Uh, in uh, exploring this question primarily uh, on the European Union, but for reasons that I'll set forth, I think the European Union is a good indicator of the kind of problems uh, and issues that would be raised by analyzing this question more generally. Now, the democratic legitimacy of international cooperation, of multilateralism, of international institutions uh, is a central issue in public debate in most uh, of the countries uh, of the world. Uh, And in the United States, uh, I could string a set of uh, lurid quotations uh, about things ranging from the Supreme Court citing international and foreign law, uh, the legitimacy uh, of the WTO, uh, the role of the UN Security Council in the run-up to the Iraq War, uh, the International Criminal Court. And in all of these cases, you'll see people backing arguments, whether those are arguments for expanding or contracting the ambit of international cooperation, backing those arguments with claims about the democratic illegitimacy uh, of current structures. But instead of reading all those quotations, I'll just offer one anecdote, which is uh, one of the perks of these lectures is that you get a wonderful big poster. I'd like to thank Amy for providing that big poster. The picture has, as far as I can tell, nothing to do with my lecture, but it's a beautiful (laughs) picture nonetheless. Um, And it was uh, hung, among other places, this poster, uh, elevator at the Woodrow Wilson school where students are not shy and it wasn't there. Uh, So here's this big post says is there a democratic deficit in world politics and it wasn't up for three hours before some student whipped out a pink highlighting pen and wrote you think? (laughs) Uh, So clearly lots of people think there is a democratic deficit uh, in world politics and what I want to do today is advance A general framework for assessing the democratic legitimacy of international institutions and focus uh, in applying it on the European Union. Now, there's a good, a series of good reasons, besides the fact I've written on it before, uh, to focus on the EU. It is the most ambitious and the most successful experiment in international cooperation uh, in world history. Uh, And the Treaty of Rome, the founding treaty of the European Union, as Um, amended, serves as a de facto overriding constitution, in many cases, for uh, Europe. Uh, Moreover, most politicians, commentators, analysts seem to think, uh, and even voters perhaps, uh, that the EU suffers from a severe democratic deficit, that it is not democratically legitimate. In the communique of the European summit where the heads of state meet that launched this recent effort over the last six or seven years to promulgate a constitution, an explicit constitution in place of the de facto constitution they have now in the form of a treaty for the European Union. European Union uh, leaders designated the EU's lack of democratic legitimacy as quote, the first challenge facing Europe. And that challenge uh, has been debated extraordinarily broadly, it's fair to say that the constitutional debate on the future of Europe is the broadest, deepest, and in certain respects the best constitutional debate ever held in reference to an explicit uh, promulgation uh, of a constitution. Most constitutions, of course, are promulgated in secret or quasi-secret, as was our own, uh, justified quickly, uh, and then um, uh, implemented. Some critics have said, uh, uh, Oxford Don Larry Seedentop asked rhetorically once, where are the Madisons uh, for Europe? To which I would retort, uh, who isn't a Madison for Europe? It seems like every politician, every philosopher uh, has come up with their own proposal. So it's a very deep debate and many people seem to think it's a problem and it's not hard to see why the democratic legitimacy of the European Union seems problematic. And the characteristics I'm about to name of the European Union are similar to those in other institutions uh, in world politics. Uh, For one thing, only one branch, and that's one more than most international institutions, is directly elected, the European Parliament. Uh, It's far weaker than any national uh, parliaments we know of. The elections are decentralized, uh, apathetic uh, affairs. Um, in which voters decide on the basis of national considerations or general crankiness um, to vote for one party or the other, uh, there's almost no scholarly evidence that European considerations ever play a role uh, in these elections. The European Commission, that group of technocrats in Brussels, currently headed by uh, Barroso, is widely perceived as a distant technocracy of career officials, Um, The most powerful of Brussels institutions, the Council of Ministers uh, where national governments send their representatives, debates in secret, deliberates in secret, and whereas it is indirectly uh, accountable uh, to voters, there is no direct electoral contestation about what goes on there. The European Court of Justice, the Supreme Court for Europe, uh, is extraordinarily powerful by comparison to most national courts. and is appointed in a kind of horse trading between member states in which uh, the people's voice is never heard. Now these kind of procedural qualms might not be, um, uh, might, might be tolerable. We're it not for the perceived bias in the outcomes of what happens uh, in Europe. Right-wing critics believe the EU infringes on personal liberty, that it's a kind of conspiracy by socialist regulators uh, in Brussels. Uh, but on the left, Uh, uh, more strikingly, a specter of a throwback to a fiscally weak, laissez-faire 19th century state um, haunts Europe today. Uh, EU directives promote wider markets, promote harmonized regulations so business can get what it wants, uh, but there is no social policy, no social welfare policy in Europe, um, and that generates uh, a lot of uh, suspicion. And then there's the general fact about international institutions in general, and the EU in particular, that they appear large, distant, hardly proximate um, to what uh, people, uh, people's everyday uh, uh, lives. And for this reason, many believe it to be uh, democratically illegitimate. Uh, now then, rather than reading more quotes, uh, I'll show some political cartoons. Um, So here we have a recent event that pretty much encapsulates all of this, uh, the French and Dutch referenda where they rejected a new European constitution even though it was a relatively conservative document. And here we have a very polite cartoon, because it's Canadian, of the European Union uh, being tossed over a wall from Paris um, and splattering uh, on the ground. Um, Most European voters, when asked about the European Union, turn cranky. Uh, so they take out uh, their political frustrations uh, on it. Uh, When they're not doing that, they're sleeping. Uh, They don't care about it uh, at all. Um, And the general view of uh, uh, people, or particularly political cartoonists, of the officials uh, in Europe is that they really wish all these people would just go away. Uh, so here we have two officials on top of the Berlimont building uh, in Europe. Uh, wouldn't be Europe be so much better without all these Europeans that gum up the works. Uh, a technocratic monolith. Uh, and some people uh, are so in, uh, concerned about that so they really think this sort of lack of legitimacy will undermine um, what is, again, the world's most successful experiment in international uh, cooperation. That's it with the slides. I'm not gonna uh, PowerPoint my way through. My argument today is that if we adopt reasonable criteria for judging the democratic legitimacy of international institutions in general and the EU in particular, we will find that the EU and presumptively other similar forms of international governance um, uh, are democratically legitimate. Or to put it more precisely, EU policymaking is as transparent as accountable, as effective, and as responsive to European citizens um, as the governance of national governments that constitute it. Um, So to make this argument, I proceed in two steps. First, I set forth some reasonable criteria for judging such institutions, uh, and then I will apply it, those criteria, uh, to the European Union. So how do you reach a conclusion? about whether or not an international institution is democratically uh, legitimate. Now, my claim here is that any applied assessment of the democratic legitimacy of real existing uh, institutions uh, must meet two criteria, the first philosophical and the second pragmatic. The assessment must be philosophically coherent and pragmatically feasible. So let's consider each in turn. First, the standard of philosophical coherence imposes the requirement that the assessment of whether or not an institution is democratically legitimate be made relative to some fundamental normative conception of democracy um, that is explicit, coherent, and uh, general. Uh, And a philosophically coherent conception of democracy, my apologies to my political philosopher, Uh, colleagues here for the simplicity of this argument, uh, contributes to the justification of a particular real-world democratic forum by offering a set of standards that rest on some mix of fundamental political values, liberty, equality, solidarity, um, toward which we hope that the realization, uh, 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 toward which the realization of which the system works. Now I'm not by training a political uh, philosopher and I'm not seeking here to make any fundamental contribution political philosophy. Instead what I'm gonna do is take as given a set of philosophical positions we see in the debates about multilateral institutions in general and the EU in particular. Almost all contributors to such debates or the arguments of such contributors can be divided into four categories. Um, uh, Arguments that draw on a libertarian conception of democracy, a pluralist conception of democracy, a social democratic conception of democracy or a deliberative conception of democracy. Now I'll explain precisely what these are uh, in a moment, but for now I'll just say that libertarians are concerned uh, with limited governments, with liberty before all. Uh, Pluralists are concerned with uh, accountability and accurate representation of public preferences. Um, Social democrats with offsetting Economic inequality, and deliberative Democrats with encouraging active participation and debate. And for the moment, I simply underscore that any argument about whether or not an international institution is legitimate needs to be based on some philosophically coherent standard of this kind. So that's the first criterion. The second uh, is the pragmatic feasibility uh, of the uh, proposal. Uh, any comparison between existing international institutions and some ideal form of a perfectly participatory, perfectly democratic, perfectly egalitarian or deliberative politics uh, is utopian. Such um, uh, models are not realized anywhere even in the ideal Westminsterian or uh, ancient systems sometimes held up as exemplars. And so it's a trivial matter Um, that to deploy such ideal metrics to demonstrate that any political institution that exists like the EU doesn't meet the basic democratic criteria set forth by such theories. Yet it's unfair to judge the EU or any other institution by standards that no modern government uh, can meet. And any useful uh, um, assessment of its democratic legitimacy must be based Uh, on a comparison with the actual functioning of national democracies and the actual mechanisms used in real life to approximate uh, those ideals. Now, this would seem a very simple and straightforward point, except my contention is that most critics of multilateralism in general, and the EU in particular, are in fact working with utopian rather than um, real-world standards, standards that take into account uh, the imperfections of political uh, life. And one particular difference between ideal standards and uh, applied standards, the applied world of politicians and political scientists, is particularly relevant here, which is that ideal democratic theories tend systematically to overlook uh, the limitations on the ability and willingness of individuals, even in fully democratic societies, to involve themselves extensively in politics, to develop expertise, to contract with one another in order to manage credible commitment problems uh, and to overcome existing differentials in social resources. In the real world, as opposed to the ideal world, um, individuals suffer from limited and unequal ability to devote time and energy to learning about engaging in politics. And the resulting, uh, and they tend to be uh, non-participatory often, ignorant often. And we work with institutions that are imperfect at realizing, uh, contracting uh, to get the outcomes we want. Applied democratic theory has to work with the real individuals uh, we find inattentive, inexpert, uncertain about the future, and unequal. Um, Now, constitutional systems in the real world cope with such imperfections, broadly speaking, by using and delegating to insulated political authorities. Uh, representatives and bureaucrats. We do not rule by referendum or by mass debate. And such delegation, whereas in an ideal sense it reflects a second best solution, um, is in fact in the real world uh, the best that we can reasonably achieve. Now again, I'm gonna forego the details of extending out this argument uh, as a recent paper with Bob Cohen, Steve Macedo, and myself uh, on this uh, uh, question. So here's what I intend to do today, um, to evaluate the European Union based on these four democratic criteria, uh, the libertarian, pluralist, social democratic, and deliberative democracy, by drawing on empirical evidence about how the EU and other established democratic regimes actually work. So calibrating the analysis to what's really possible to the best we can achieve. So let's start first with the classic libertarian conception of constitutional democracy, which has been the source of much criticism of global governance or multilateralism in the United States, and not a little, particularly from the British right, uh, in uh, Europe. The libertarian conception of democracy, constitutional democracy, views a democratic political order uh, as a means to protect individual liberty uh, against arbitrary, corrupt, and tyrannical power exercised uh, by the state. Uh, one of the oldest justifications for democracy, going back to John Locke and others in early modern Europe, is precisely that it assures limited government uh, and by checking state power. Uh, this is the basis on which many conservative opponents of multilateralism, uh, as I said, particularly in the UK, launched their critique. You can really see this in Europe uh, with the uh, Uh, British tabloid uh, press, um, which is constantly running lurid stories about arbitrary rule by supranational technocrats in Europe. Now, such stories uh, demonstrate, I think, an unhealthy obsession with the scatological, Uh, so Brussels is is forever portrayed as over-regulating the size of cucumbers and bananas and condoms, and you kind of get the picture uh, of how these stories are written, Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there is a very live concern and a very powerful one in political discourse about this. Um, and it's not just a tabloid concern. Oxford Larry Sedentop writes of, quote, bureaucratic despotism by a super state in Brussels. And in a wonderfully anachronistic reading of EU history, he portrays the EU as the natural follow-on of imperial French efforts to control Europe, uh, starting with Napoleon uh, and Louis XIV, the, the um, and to propagate the French administrative state across the entire continent. Um, Jeremy Rapkin from Cornell uh, sees European unification similarly as a kind of imperial scheme uh, that could only be promulgated by people who don't have a really American robust sense of their liberties. Uh, and the underlying concern here gains some superficial plausibility from the fact that what the EU does is very technocratic. It regulates economically in a complex way. And again, as we said before, it's distant. It's not directly uh, subject to electoral control. Yet my empirical claim about this libertarian argument is that the specter of an autonomous European superstate is from beginning to end an illusion. This is the least plausible of the various democratic uh, critiques. Um, In fact, the European treaty, Constitution, imposes very strict constraints on what European governments... Uh, what what the Brussels government uh, can do, and it really combines elements, the the weakest elements, of most of the world constitutions we know, and then extends them even further. Imagine a consensus democracy like the Netherlands combined with federalism like Canada, uh, combined with checks and balances like the United States, combined with limited fiscal capacity like Switzerland, and you're sort of moving in the direction of what the EU actually looks like. Um, Now, more specifically, um, here are the problems with uh, the libertarian claim. The first is uh, that the actions of the EU are under extraordinarily tight national control. There are high standards for delegating any authority to this body. Brussels can't just grab authority. Uh, For the most part, the EU is based on a treaty, um, and that treaty requires, like any international treaty, unanimous consent. Uh, to change its uh, terms. Um, this must be followed by national ratification on whatever terms a, n- a nation-state chooses uh, to do it, parliamentary uh, or referendum or uh, or bureaucratic. Um, and uh, this is a threshold for constitutional revision much higher than any existing nation-state except Switzerland. Uh, and no wonder the EU has developed over the past decade du- decades only by incrementally moving in a series of core areas on the basis of a consensus of first six and then nine, ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty-five, 12, 15, 25, and now 27 uh, countries. Um, secondly, even once constitutional power is given because you might say well once you delegate constitutional power we don't know what's going to happen to it and one of the downsides of having unanimous consent for promulgating a constitution is, you need unanimous consent to change it. You can get stuck someplace you don't want to be. Uh, But the standards for legislation or action within this constitutional system are equally, uh, not equally high, but very high in comparative perspective. Everyday EU legislation called directives requires the support of 70, in some cases 100, percent of the weighted votes of national representatives. Uh, in the Council of Ministers. A higher portion, proportion than required in any national legislative system. In fact, it's order of magnitude the same as required to amend the American Constitution. So there is tremendous protection against any arbitrary expansion of power. The result of this, and, and, and is such an important characteristic, that the EU shares with other international institutions that I treat it separately is the limitation in the instruments that an institution like this uh, has. The EU lacks almost every powerful policy instrument that national governments have. Um, the traditional core instrument of a national government is the, the monopoly on legitimate coercive force, the most fundamental, oldest policy. Power of a state. Yet the EU.. has no police, no army, no significant intelligence capacity and no realistic uh, possibility of achieving any of these things. Uh, it can investigate only very narrowly in antitrust cases and corruption cases. Um, nor does it have the preeminent instrument of the modern state, which is the power to tax and spend. The EU's ability to tax is capped at about 1% of the combined GDP of its members, which is about 2% of public spending in Europe, so the other 98% is spent by national and local governments. Um, And even in the areas of the greatest fiscal activity, national resources uh, trump EU resources. Take the agricultural policy, commonly thought of as an EU policy. In France, commonly thought of as a country that gains Uh, more rightly as a country that gains more than the average one from the policy, over two-thirds of spending in the agricultural sector in France is national spending, which gives the French state the power to offset most of the effects uh, of European policies. Um, So instead, the EU is condemned in perpetuity to be what the scholar Jean Domenico Maione calls a regulatory state, a state with instruments of regulation, but very few instruments of of, um, fiscal discretion. Now some of you are thinking, perhaps, that yes, but the power to regulate is an immensely uh, important power in the modern world. Great power lies in bureaucratic discretion over the application and implementation of rules. So perhaps these Brussels gnomes in the British tabloid press Um, are exercising power that way, regulating the size of cucumbers and thereby controlling uh, the British nation. Uh, But who implements most EU regulations? Not Brussels. EU um, officials number fewer than 30,000, of which maybe 5,000 are really decision makers. You have to remember that a multinational organization requires more than its share of translators, chauffeurs, and then there are these quirky facts about the EU like, because the French and everybody else have never agreed, its parliament meets sometimes in Brussels and sometimes in Strasbourg, so you have to move those files back and forth uh, once a month. That takes a lot of manpower. You're talking about a workforce, even if you take the larger number, no larger than a medium-sized European city. It's one fortieth of the civilian workforce of the federal government in the United States, a country noted worldwide for the small size uh, of its public workforce. So the task of implementing EU regulations falls necessarily to national parliaments and national officials. It's as if all federal law in the United States were implemented on a relatively discretionary basis by states. Um, And whereas it is hard for legal reasons for states to avoid implementation permanently, they can shape it, delay it, and adjust it in a way uh, that fits their needs. Um, now, these existing constraints on the EU not only limit arbitrary or corrupt action—the kind that people who are concern libertarians concerned about liber- uh, limited government care about—but um, um, it's also true that these constraints are integrally connected with the core constitutional structure of the EU. So none of this is likely to change anytime soon. Libertarians should really view the EU as a model, the world's best model of limited government of precisely the kind uh, they normally support. So much uh, for the libertarian critique. Um, The second possible democratic view you might hold is a pluralist uh, view. A view that the EU is an uh, unaccountable body um, because uh, it it is not directly responsive or accountable uh, to the people's views. It may not be arbitrary or corrupt, uh, but its policies may be biased or not responsive uh, to people. Uh, Let's remember that despite everything I've said about its uh, uh, inability to uh, arbitrarily expand uh, its mandate, the EU is in certain areas a remarkably powerful uh, institution. Uh, there are essential and important areas of European life, notably market liberalization and regulation, monetary policy, trade policy, antitrust and anti-subsidy policy, certain parts of agricultural policy, industrial standardization, even parts of environmental policy uh, that are primarily um, uh, emanate from Brussels it totals probably 10 or 20% of what goes on uh, in European uh, politics. The EU is a global superpower by virtue of its united status in areas like international trade. If you're a soybean producer in Nebraska, you are producing soybeans to European standards because European standards are the tightest ones in the global market you're never gonna sell soybeans that can't be resold anywhere in the world. That's an extraordinarily powerful, united capacity of an institution. Um, Moreover, in some of these areas, uh, semi-autonomous institutions like the Court of Justice, the Central Bank, uh, the public prosecutors uh, in Europe, um, uh, and the trade officials play a very important role. And that's where our second set of critics, the pluralists, enter. The pluralist conception of democracy equates democratic legitimacy with direct and formal accountability of elected officials um, to uh, um, their electorate. Political institutions are democratically legitimate when they afford active individuals a meaningful and equal ability uh, to influence policy outcomes. And the EU, as I said before, is presumptively suspect Its elections aren't really elections on European uh, issues. Robert Dahl, uh, the political scientist of the 20th century most associated with uh, pluralism, uh, argues, quote, to ensure public debate it would be necessary to create an international equivalent to national public competition by parties and officials seeking office. And he points out that governance in an international institution by foreign policy means of national governments is a constraint on democracy. He says, in democratic countries, it's notoriously difficult for citizens to exercise direct control over many key decisions in foreign affairs. What grounds do we have for thinking that citizens in different countries engaged in international systems can ever attain the degree of influence and control over decisions that they now exercise within their own countries? And in recent years, a number of scholars in the United States, particularly group of conservative uh, legal scholars, the so-called new sovereigntists, uh, have argued against international human rights law and multilateral commitments more generally uh, precisely on the notion that they don't fully uh, realize our uh, values of democratic, uh, popular sovereignty. Um, Even uh, if you pointed out Uh, that most of the national governments that take part in EU policy are elected, uh, critics might still point out that the people who are making the decisions are not parliamentarians. Um, They're instead ministers and diplomats, uh, the most insulated people uh, in uh, national governments. And some criticize the EU as little more than an insulated cartel of national technocrats on regulating citizens free from public scrutiny. So yes, they want to regulate the size of cucumbers, but it's British regulators that are colluding uh, with others uh, to do this. Now, this is a more plausible critique of the EU because there is some descriptive truth to the um, account of how European policymaking takes place. It is, in fact, more indirect than national policymaking. It is delegated. It's true that these elections Uh, are not uh, particularly meaningful. But there are four reasons why we should not be concerned. The first is uh, that international organizations comprised of democracies are in fact subject to robust mechanisms of electoral accountability when necessary uh, via elected national governments. The most important hurdle that any piece of legislation or any constitutional change in the EU has to surmount is the hurdle of gaining assent from 70% of the nation's states. And those heads of state and um, ruling coalitions are directly elected. True, uh, they have a certain amount of autonomy, but they do uh, in domestic life uh, as well. Any country that makes it a priority, and Denmark and Sweden have chosen to do so, uh, can establish mechanisms of ex-ante before the fact national parliamentary scrutiny of any action that the EU uh, does. Um, The second point um, is that EU legislation is shaped by checks and balances. You might say, well, yeah, in theory, there are these democratic um, uh, limitations on the EU, but in practice, nobody seems to exercise them. So what stops the member states from doing whatever they want, evading control of their own public by working in this more remote international arena? And the answer is checks and balances. The EU is not a system of parliamentary sovereignty uh, like Britain or Sweden, but like the US, it's one of separation of powers and federalism with responsibilities divided horizontally among branches of the European Union uh, and vertically between layers of government, the nation states and Brussels. Rather than one big electoral mandate, there are dozens of smaller pressures on EU policy. Uh, Bob Cohen and Ruth Grant have a good paper uh, on the many ways that political institutions can be made accountable indirectly by funding decisions, by nominating decisions, uh, by ex-post sanctioning of various kinds, uh, and others have made a similar argument in the EU context. To get an idea of how much input there can be without ever having a single direct deliberative election about European policy, consider how a bill becomes a law, as we would say in, in undergraduate congress course, uh, in Europe. Now to summarize what might be another interminable PowerPoint presentation, legislation passes crudely through the following procedure. First. The elected leaders of 27 member states consensually place the item on the agenda. B, a technocratic secretariat appointed by these democratic member states, the commission, proposes a piece of legislation. The member states, directly elected, um, vote by the 70% majority or sometimes 100% in favor of that piece of legislation or amend it. An absolute majority of directly elected parliamentarians in Europe uh, trans, um, uh, amend and assent uh, to, to that a bill, negotiate with the council. Then national governments, again directly elected, transpose those EU rules into national laws by whatever parliamentary or bureaucratic procedures they choose. Um, national bureaucracies, under the control of, direct, of democratic parliaments, just as they do with domestic laws, implement those, and all this is subject to oversight by both a European court and national courts working together in a, in a complex uh, procedure. Indirect control is ubiquitous, and this is true of most international uh, institutions. Uh, some are simpler uh, than the EU or have fewer direct democratic links, uh, but all of them are tightly controlled uh, insofar as democratic governments are involved in them by democratic Um, accountability uh, from home. So the appropriate question to ask is not who has any say over EU legislation. The appropriate question is who doesn't have any say over EU legislation. If there's a sort of political flaw in the system, it's that too many people perhaps uh, have a say. And one interesting implication, this is my third point about the pluralists, is that this makes the system enormously transparent. If you have a system Uh, where all the heads of state, followed by a technocratic body of EU officials, followed by 27 national ministers, followed by 700 European parliamentarians, followed by hundreds uh, of national officials uh, and courts, have oversight. It's impossible to keep a secret, which is one of the reasons why the American form of government is somewhat more open informationally than, say, uh, in uh, a pure parliamentary sovereignty uh, some purely parliamentary sovereignty systems because it's just impossible uh, to keep things uh, secret for long. In fact, recent research on the EU suggests that the regulatory and legislative procedures in Europe are as open to input from civil society and as, as, open, uh, as compelled to give reasons and provide transparent information as the relatively open systems uh, of Switzerland and the United States. So the EU may be unfamiliar to its citizens, but it is not closed uh, to its citizens. And one other implication of this is it's almost impossible to be corrupt. Now, of course, it's impossible to be corrupt to start with for the limited government reason. If you don't have any money, it's hard to be corrupt about uh, giving it up. Um, But it's also hard um, in the little money that you have there uh, to do anything secretly. And I'll tell one anecdote about this that I think is an exception that proves the rule. Some years back, an EU commissioner from France, Edith Cresson, was unceremoniously removed from office for slipping a very small consulting contract. It was a couple thousand dollars, I think, to a hometown dentist, believe it or not. Um, Now, Cresson's previous record in French politics um, was sleazy even by French standards, which is saying something. Um, Nonetheless, she'd risen to be prime minister um, as a commissioner in the EU, she didn't last 18 months. And I once had the occasion with, with Anne Marie to meet the person who did her in, uh, who was a Swedish commissioner and quite the stereotype. She was a perfectly ramrod straight woman with a very sensible uh, gray hair tied in a bun, uh, rather humorless, I think. Uh, and she, uh, so I took the opportunity. We were actually, this was a USC event, we were in a posh. L.A. club, so she was feeling very uncomfortable. And I took the opportunity to talk to her about EU politics and I said, well what motivated you to go after Edith at And she looked at me with a steely look and said, we don't do things like that in Sweden. Right? <laughs> so I- if you're in a system where anybody's standards can be imposed on you, uh, you have to be careful. Now some of you familiar with the EU might point out, and this is my last point with regard to the pluralists, Uh, that there's some striking exceptions um, to this decentralized governance style. Some EU institutions that rely on technocrats and judges to resolve essentially political questions of redistribution or allocation of risk. The European Central Bank, the European Court of Justice are powerful independent bodies not subject to nation-state control. Yet these EU judges Technocrats and central bank officials enjoy the greatest autonomy precisely in the area, uh, those areas central banking, constitutional adjudication, criminal and civil prosecution, technical administration, economic diplomacy, in which most advanced industrial democracies also permit their officials to act uh, more uh, freely. Uh, and for reasons that some people here, Chris Eisgruber and Philip Pettit, Steve Macedo, have argued, and others have argued in the EU context, such counter-majoritarian policies have a sound normative basis. I won't go into it uh, in detail, but happy to talk about it uh, in, in the question uh, period. And so this explains our final fact about the EU, which is it is, in fact, if you poll people, more popular than the national governments in Europe. Not all national governments. It is true, actually, as Dahl might be happy to hear that in some small states like Denmark, people like their system of government a lot. But if you add together all the governments of Europe, uh, the support for European institutions is in fact higher uh, than for national ones. So so much for the pluralist democratic concern. What about the next one, the social democratic uh, view? The use of non-majoritarian institutions, the reliance on democratic mechanisms where people don't really participate, alerts us to a possible problem here, that the EU might be generating biased uh, outcomes. And this is where the social democrats come in. Drawing on a tradition that dates back to Schumpeter and Polanyi, represented today by Jürgen Habermas and others, social democrats view political institutions uh, democratic institutions, primarily as means to offset the inequality in concentrated wealth that tends, in this reading, to naturally accrue in capitalist societies. So here the concern is not that the EU is too strong. It's that the EU is too weak, that it has a very robust mechanism for promoting free trade, for promoting markets, for promoting things that businessmen uh, want. Negative integration, it's often referred to, uh, but very little capacity to engage in positive integration, social welfare policy, consumer protection, labor, healthcare, and this is also inherent because if you have an institution that can't spend money, do a first approximation, um, and has to act by unanimity, it's not really possible to have redistributive policies that have any uh, meaning. So this bias is not happenstance, it's embedded uh, in the EU, and so we again see the specter of this 19th century neoliberal uh, state. Uh, this would be bad enough, but on top of that, some people argue uh, that market integration actually puts pressure on the social welfare states which cannot withstand the tough competition of globalization, even within uh, Europe. And so we see a race to the bottom with countries reducing their regulatory standards and social welfare uh, in order to Um, uh, uh, compete in this uh, market. Um, Now, on its face, this criticism is at least more plausible than the libertarian one because it's true that the EU is primarily a market-constructing body. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, when you look at the studies of social welfare provision in Europe, one sees the following things. First, social welfare provision in Europe is relatively stable. Uh, It is trending downward uh, slowly, uh, but it's not imploding. And as Jonas Pondison and others here at Princeton have shown, uh, there is no consistent negative correlation between globalization and social welfare cuts. And you see that from the textbook examples like Sweden, Denmark, Finland, of countries that are highly globalized and top the economist chart uh, of competitive countries in the world and nonetheless have extremely robust social welfare systems. Uh, nor is there much evidence of bias in EU uh, policy. Uh, But the most important fact about the social democratic critique is that studies show time and time again that the critical constraint on social spending in Europe, on spending on pensions, medical care, redistribution, uh, does not come from the EU or from globalization. Uh, It comes from economic, demographic, and fiscal trends, particularly the aging uh, of the population. the system is stable but needs to be uh, consolidated. Um, and so, even if there is some neoliberal nudge from the EU, that's the direction in which, for technocratic reasons, the EU is going to ha- have to go. Even the United States going to have to go uh, anyway. So, in that context, it's better to think uh, of uh, globalization and social welfare as being compliment- complementary. Um, and we see real world examples. Uh, where this takes place. Which brings us to the last and most radical critique, uh, namely the deliberative democratic critique. Um, This final normative conception of democracy, um, sometimes called strong democracy, deliberative democracy, views political institutions as means not just to assure equal opportunity for participation or equal opportunity to make government accountable or to defend rights, Uh, but as a means to render political participation itself more meaningful and effective for citizens. Uh, I've said several times that European elections tend to be desultory, apathetic affairs. Uh, And deliberative, Democrats jump in and they say the job of government, the job of a constitution is in part to reconnect an apathetic and passive citizenry to the political process. Um, more opportunities for direct participation and deliberation would do this and would thereby legitimate, create trust, uh, create a sense of um, uh, support uh, for European integration. Uh, Now this is a very attractive conception of democracy with its aura of New England town meetings and uh, and so on. And in many contexts um, it makes sense, but not, I think, in the European uh, context. One critical point is that the premise on which it's based, which is that participation uh, in an existing democratic system leads to greater trust or positive feelings, is simply wrong. It is what we're taught in civics. But there is, in fact, no correlation between popular participation and popularity or trust or any other measurable attribute of internet, uh, political systems, the EU uh, included. It's actually the courts, and believe it or not, the bureaucracies in most OECD countries that people trust. Uh, they dislike parliaments, and they loathe elected politicians. Um, so, um, so we're not going to get a more popular uh, Europe or more trusted Europe this way, but some people might say, so what? If you're a serious deliberative Democrat, you might say it doesn't matter. I think meaningful participation in politics is an important thing uh, for its own sake, even if it doesn't create trust and support. Uh, But here the problem is feasibility, because there is the striking fact that there are myriad opportunities for individuals to influence European policy, and they don't take them. And even when you expand those opportunities or you publicize those opportunities as happened with the recent constitutional debate, Europeans don't take them. So the question is why? Uh, Now the polls show it's not because they think their participation is inefficacious. It's not because they think EU institutions are not important. It's because they don't care about the outcome. Now why would they not care? Well here uh, we need to look at what the EU does. Um, Remember that your average person in an electorate keeps one or two issues uh, in their mind. In the political system as a whole, people keep uh, maybe a half a dozen. Uh, But the five most salient issues in OECD democracies, they're almost all the same, uh, is healthcare, or healthcare education, law and order, pensions, and social security policy, and taxation and fiscal policy. Uh, None of these is an EU competence. Uh, Instead, Uh, The EU has to build a polity on the basis of trade liberalization, agriculture, removal of regulatory barriers, environmental policy, foreign aid, and foreign policy coordination. These issues are important, but they're not important enough to mobilize active political behavior, organization building, learning, and deliberation on the part of the public, not anywhere. Uh, And in a world without salient issues, facilitating political participation is perverse. What you end up seeing is what you saw in these referenda about France and the Netherlands, where almost nobody, I mean, something like 70 or 90 percent of the votes, depending on how you count, had nothing to do with the European Union at all. Um, And uh, upwards of 95 percent had nothing to do with the content of the Constitution. So you promulgate political participation in a situation where you don't have the kind of stable salient issues that structure domestic polities, and you end up uh, with uh, chaos. You could, of course, force people to pay attention by forcing issues onto the European agenda, like social welfare policy, that aren't there now. But if you did that, uh, then people would be likely uh, to leave the European Union. They don't support uh, those issues, and there are, in fact, we can talk about it in question time. Uh, no viable proposals uh, on the table to do that. Um, so in conclusion, I've hoped to persuade you that no matter what kind of Democrat you are, no matter what normative position you start from, whether it's a libertarian position, here thought of on the right, uh, or a social democratic position on the left, or a sort of more culturally democratic position, deliberative Democrat, or classic pluralist, Um, that there really isn't the empirical evidence to support the view that the EU is any worse than the kind of second best democracies that we have uh, in national governments. Now I don't mean this as an apology for everything that the EU does. Some of my colleagues have gone back and forth uh, 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 on this question. I think there are cases which clearly should generate scrutiny and skepticism. One is the central bank, I mean of course All central banks are independent, and so is the European one. But the European Central Bank is more independent than any national exemplar in the developed world with no technocratic uh, justification. Um, So you can certainly use this kind of analysis as a critical uh, standard. I would conclude, then, by just pointing out one broader implication of the work, uh, which is that it is a certain model, but not the only model, of how political philosophers and political scientists might work together. Uh, Because the basic insight here uh, of the framework is that you cannot reach a conclusion uh, about the democratic legitimacy of real existing institutions without both political philosophy and political science. And the political science is essential because often the effect of trying to realize uh, a political goal in politics will be perverse, as in the case uh, when we Um, insulate policy in order to make it representative uh, of a broader uh, constituency. Um, Now, I see many uh, colleagues, uh, co-authors, even some critics out there. In fact, I assume there are probably more critics out there than I know. Uh, So I look forward to your comments. Thank you. the things would be similar, right? I think that the the focus on indirectly democratic mechanisms, the fact that you uh, legitimate international institutions not by direct action but by indirect action via national governments, Um, the extraordinary constraints that make any kind of black helicopter scenario about the the UN kind of absurd, Um, the uh, transparency of what goes on uh, there, should you choose to know. These things are constants across um, uh, international institutions, I think, uh, and as is the ultimate domestic power to decide how things are implemented. Uh, there, there's one difference relevant to this uh, discussion, which I think is important, which is the EU is an institution of all democracies, where you can assume a kind of floor of democratic behavior and draw on that. The UN is not and that raises complications, but those complications cut both ways, right? On the one hand, you can't assume that what the representative of pick your favorite authoritarian state um, is saying is in any sense democratically legitimate. On the other hand, insofar as most international institutions are dominated at the end of the day by powerful states, and insofar as those powerful states are democratic states, uh, you at least have fair democratic representation of their views. You get into a different issue then, which is whether or not the distributive conflicts between countries are managed in the UN in a, in a reasonable way. And that's a question I actually didn't address here. I'm more concerned with the democratic issue of whether these institutions should be more participatory. Um, and in many ways, uh, international institutions, this is something that uh, Bob Cohen and Steve Macedo and I have I've worked on a bit in another paper, these international institutions can serve to help um, facilitate democratic mechanisms, not just in um, non democratic states, but in democratic ones as well. Yes. Well, I, 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 I'm, I, I think the deliberative one is in a sense tragic, right? I mean, because it, there is an ideal there and the EU doesn't meet it and can't meet it. So my argument there is a little bit different than the argument in the other ones. It's that um, the only way to deal with these kinds of issues is to deal with them in a non-deliberative way. So the, the principle is in danger by, by virtue of the fact that it's very, much more difficult to realize, I think, than the other ones. Um, and people have been on fundamental grounds critical of deliberative and and I also think that the single institution which is the one I mentioned at the end that is most questionable in the EU is the central bank now it's it's hard to know exactly how questionable it is because people don't understand monetary policy and central banking as well as they might so we don't actually know to the best of my knowledge precisely what the effect of central bank independence in the European case is on the distribution of wealth across Europe. So it's hard to know exactly what the effect is. But you have this gut level feeling that if you have an international central bank that is less uh, accountable than any national one, and there's no economic reason to justify that, quite the opposite, most people would say that the more diverse a currency area is, the less plausible it is to have uh, a single currency and a single policy that's something that one would want to think twice about
0: yes yes sorry I don't You know your name yes um,
2: I find your argument very convincing and um, similar presentations have been made during the uh, debate in France um, on the constitutional treaty the problem is just that it apparently seems uh, too difficult or not or people just do not buy that what it is Well, I certainly don't believe that sending people like me around to give them 50-minute lectures on democratic theory is going to do it. Um, so we'll, we'll have to think of something else. Um, and I think the, the best option is to de-democratize. Um, Europe is intrinsically dull. Really, I hate to say this as somebody who teaches about it and wants my students to work on it, but the truth is, day-to-day you know, crafting the Boston stabilization force and regulating these cucumbers or whatever else is not interesting stuff most of the time. And because these aren't salient issues, it's not something that people are already mobilized on, the political parties are already framed, formed around, um, it's not one of the big six issues. Uh, in fact, it's extremely... Uh, so my view is, great. Let's encourage them not to pay attention. Um, if they don't like the outcome or if the outcome falls in a number of areas, a certain environmental um, items are like that, there are a few foreign policy items that are like that, um, then people will mobilize. In fact, they do. In a very issue-specific way to, to get what they want. Now, my colleagues in Europe are quite skeptical of this. They say, well, no, the genie's out of the bottle. There's nothing we can do. It's a mistake to have this constitutional process that mobilized everybody, but now, you know, horse is out of the barn. We have to live with it. I think the public has a remarkable ability to forget. And, and the, the example of this would be the actual vote on enlargement. It's true that there are some people in France who don't like enlargement, although it's also true that only something on the order of 6 to 8% of French cast a vote having anything to do with Turkey, if we believe what they say. Um, but... Um, so you... Uh, uh, the interesting decision, the most important decision taken in Europe, was the decision in the last few years was the decision to enlarge. Um, that decision went through the French Parliament with nobody saying anything about it. Why? Because it was structured in a different way. Because people didn't assume that they would try to mobilize the public. The Constitution, by contrast, was a deliberate strategy, a deliberate PR strategy of trying to mobilize people to generate legitimacy. And you see the result. So my view is, go back to the old strategy, you'll have a couple of tough years, uh, and then you'll be able to proceed. Uh, well, the, the, only, the only barrier I see to it is that the French uh, president in his infinite wisdom managed to write into the Constitution that some enlargement issues were gonna have to be voted on, and the socialist candidate has promised a referendum. But if Sarkozy were elected, which is why, extraordinary number of people who care more about Europe than they do about their political alignment in Europe today are saying they secretly hope Sarkozy wins. And the reason is because he's not committed to any kind of democratic action in Europe, and then you can get rid of this Constitution, which is a relatively insignificant document in the substance anyway, and move on with everyday policy making. And I think their instinct is right. Um, in various forms. I mean, NAFTA is, in a sense, that, uh, that, that kind of effort, um, but not with, the same, not with the same intensity of commitment, and there are a lot of historical reasons for that. Um, some are ideological or geopolitical, but uh, perhaps the most important one, at least in my view, is that uh, Europe is a continent of uh, now 27 countries, but it's always been a, a, a rather large number of small countries who are extremely interdependent. Uh, more interdependent than any uh, industrialized other industrialized countries as a group, um, and so the the pragmatic necessity of cooperating is enormous uh, for them. And there are people in this room, Helen Milner, who have written on the precise kind of trade relations that facilitate this kind of cooperation. But if you were just making a checklist of the, sort of the ten things you look for to make a, a a viable deep commitment to regional integration, Europe's got a lot more than anybody else. Um, but I do believe that the, the lessons are applicable. That is, all right, maybe the institutions that Asia comes up with in 20 years or that are being used in NAFTA or Latin America uses in Mercosur, so maybe they're not exactly the same, but the basic political problems they have to face, adjudication, effective negotiation, the, the regime theoretical problems uh, that we look at are similar. And so I think the European experience is a very striking experience for the whole world going forward. And that's particularly true if you take the somewhat decentralized view of how the EU really works that I elaborated. Anne-Marie Slaughter worked on networks internationally. And the EU is, in a certain sense, much more a network than it really is a hierarchy, or in many respects it is. Um, and that is certainly a generalizable proposition about.
1: To free
2: some own. Right. Um, that's a very good question, and it, it gets to the heart, I think, of what the struggle that politicians face here. And it, there's bad news and good news. Um, the, the bad news is it's true that all governments in Europe are are relatively unpopular. Um, the reason is not. Uh, because they are less democratic than they used to be, or because their political institutions aren't designed quite right, it's, it's more or less because what they have to do is not popular. It's not popular to consolidate social welfare systems. It's not possible. It's not popular to balance the claims of the old and the young. It's not popular to think about how to replenish the labor force. Uh, Europe has to do things that are not politically popular, um, and so it it. it doesn't, and, and, and traditionally when we think about how to empower governments to do things that are in the long term or diffuse benefit of the society, the public good, but are of are opposed by either some salient public opinion or by um, specialized interest, we think about ins- And that's why people say things like, let's get over with the French election because the moment so, kind of logic uh, in a certain way uh, applies. So that's the and the, and the, and the bad news is also that this then spills over into the EU, so that explains uh, I think a lot of the reason that we see when we do open it up to, to discussion, why we see so much opposition. You see people 95% concerned about domestic issues, voting you know, 60% against the EU, so they're reflecting that dissatisfaction. Uh, the only uh, good side of the story is Uh, In almost every respect, the EU is, what it does, what it is, how it works, is more popular and more trusted than the national governments, right? So, uh, in a bad world, the EU is doing pretty well. And that's the best that can be said for it, but that's the political world. That's how politics works. That's an interesting question. You mean um, l- l- legal innovation or or, or or private sector innovation? What kind of innovation?
1: Well, people, let's say there's some interpretive shift or creativeness. Because now you have so many constraints which are building this so-called what mm-hmm. you call it transparency. Mm-hmm. You just cannot do all the many things you want to do by yourself. I mean, even on an individual basis, on a government basis,
2: state basis? Mm-hmm. It. Well so I will find a way that it,
1: will create it an avenue which you cannot do before,
2: now can do it. Mm-hmm. Well, one one reason why I'm not so concerned about um, the the second order declining legitimacy of the EU, that is the fact that politics in general has a bad name less effective, is because I think there's less for it to do. Um, now this is a controversial view my Colleague, this year Yoska Fischer disagrees with it, um, but I think there is a kind of stable European constitutional compromise. There are things that the nation states do that they will continue to do, like tax and spend and provide social welfare. There are things that Europe does that it will continue to do, and there are actually relatively few policies that are that are credible candidates to to shift. Now, one of the characteristics about these two, bundles, right, what Europe does and what what. Um, Uh, the nation states do, is the things that Europe does are things that require an enormously high level of consensus, right? Everybody really has to be on the same page because um, you need to have unanimity and 70% support. So something like trade liberalization became a kind of unanimous policy of Western countries um, for for the last 50 years. Right? might not remain that way, but certainly for the last 50 years it it, it has been. There are other things, like social welfare provision, that different countries do in strikingly different ways, and many people think there's no real benefit to doing them all the same way. We shouldn't constrain them. In fact, it's a good thing to have different experiments going on, so if the Swedes figure out how to do this bit of it, or the British figure out how to have a flexible labor market, the example will transferred it will be an example for other countries. So you'll get more learning, you'll get more innovation if you have a decentralized system. And I think there's a plausible case to be made, although it's a, it's a sufficiently subtle question I have to think it through, that the issues that remain national where there's a lot of diversity are precisely the kind of issues where there are a lot of different possible solutions to a problem, some may work in some places and not others. And so there's a lot of that kind of decentralized innovation and learning going on, precisely as it should be. And the issues that are more at the European level tend to be the kind of issues like, you know, we need to have catalytic converters on our cars, and we you know, shouldn't allow random protectionism of, 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 of alcohol imports, that people now have come, or human rights, have pe- people come now broadly to agree on across Europe. So my first guess would be it's a pretty good balance they've struck, maintaining the innovation where it's needed, constraining it where it's efficient to do so. Laboratories of the States. If you, you know.
1: were applying the same four categories to the United States, say in 1830, would you get the same kind of answers? And how would that change how you might look at Europe?
2: Well, the standards would be very different, right? Because it's, I mean, it's 1830. So we would we would have um, a different uh, expectation about what we think. For example, the, the claim, about the Social Democratic claim was not really alive claim in 1830. So, get one example, the Senate at that point was right. a very undemocratic institution, right. by the way you are talking about it. Would
1: you use the same criteria to judge the U.S. Senate at that
2: point? Um, I mean, in principle, yes, but, but you would need to tailor it to the circumstances of what's possible in those days. So the electorate is much smaller and, 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 and so on, but um, yeah, I mean these, and, and in fact these kinds of, st- the, this, the four standards again are, are hardly original, um, they're broadly exhaustive, but they they really summarize different generic ways that people think about applied democratic standards. So you can find them, and, and they, they are generally applied to national governments. Um, one, in 1830, I don't know, but if you apply them to the United States, in, which is what Robert Dahl and other people whom I cited did, yes, they, they fit like a glove. And I'm just borrowing them from there and saying, let's apply them to this international institution about it. So, in, in that sense, the, 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 the questions and answers about democracy are invariant. You could be talking about the town of Princeton, the state of New Jersey, the United States, Europe.
0: Yes. yes. Uh, wait, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious how much your your argument relies on on a common good understanding of politics. Mm-hmm. You might also think of democracy as being concerned with fairly balancing interests, mm-hmm. right? And so when you look at the EU, what's significant is that you're now asking um, a British citizen to balance his interest against an Italian citizen, mm-hmm. whereas before it was just Brit against Brit. And this kind of forced balancing, you could argue, is is really appropriate to only certain kinds of um, ones with shared, kind of a shared history or kind of a familial feeling. And you might argue that the EU is that kind of community, um, but you need to make that argument, right? And especially when you try to then extend it to kind of the world, you might say that this, this kind of, this, this great requirement that we're forcing people to balance their interests mm-hmm. against other people in this polity
1: is quite a significant requirement that we need to adjust by some of um,
2: That's right and I would distinguish this entire analysis from a response to those people who say um, there is something so distinctive about the United States that, for example, we just have different rights. We don't have human rights. These aren't human rights in the American Constitution. They're American rights and they're different from somebody else's and that's what's important and that's the most important thing. You could hold that view and, and reject the notion that European Union is a desirable thing, right? But that would not be a discussion about whether it's democratic. It would be a discussion about um, what it is, right? So I'm saying it is fairly representing and carrying out the general functions of democracy. If you say, well, I think the preferences of different states are such that they don't, and in my view, should not have any interest in this, Um, that's legitimate, but I see that as a somewhat different argument. But I'd be interested in speaking with you more about it, because we actually discussed in the context of some other papers how to treat, there are a range of political philosophers, David Miller and so on, who who argue in this way. And um, I'm not 100% sure in my own mind what the relationship, the necessary relationship is between those kind of arguments and the kind of arguments I make here.
1: The organization is just a, a coalition of states as a consensus builder for trade, environment, etc. So they don't have any tooth to enforce anything.
2: Mm. No, they do.
1: And every member state has got a veto of power, whatever it is. Mm. And, and that's probably one of the reasons why Britain didn't want to join the EU.
2: Well, if Britain had had a complete veto power over everything, why should they care?
1: And EU is run, run by a couple of member nations, uh, maybe Germany or France, and everybody else had uh, to follow suit.
2: Well, that isn't the view. I would disagree with the characterization of how it works. I think it does have real power. It does have real power, and that, therefore the democratic legitimacy question is important, because you are authorizing a collective system to make decisions that stick. And yes, you can evade them for a while, and yes, you can adjust them a little bit, but you cannot just flagrantly not comply with everything that the EU does, and countries don't. In fact, their compliance rate is pretty high, as best we know. Um, And uh, so it functions like a political system where you are compelled to share power with other countries. And therefore, this question of whether it is appropriately reflecting the interests of citizens in each country arises. It also arises the democratic question of whether or not it fairly relatively apportions the power among different states. So you might say, well, it's all run by France and Britain. I don't agree with that, but but it would be a legitimate question to ask.
1: The is the uh-uh. French is still there.
2: Why you uh uh-uh. Gone. Greatly to my chagrin because I, I'm a a somewhat messy professorial kind of guy. And so, uh, as Emery will attest, we have some French francs and Deutschmarks in our drawers, and, and we missed the deadline on those. So I give them to my kids, they play with them in the living room, you know, what can you do? <laughs> and it's more money than I care to name. <laughs>
0: Given the lateness of the hour and uh, the, the great attentiveness of Professor Brodgeck to your questions, please join me uh, in thanking him for a really stimulating